You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. taking your seats to open up your Bible that you brought with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible that there is there in the pew for you to use and for you to keep if you don't have a Bible of your own or if you have someone you want to put a Bible in their hands. And open up to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you're a techie, want to use your phone, the YouVersion Bible app, the instructions are right there on the screen. It'll take you right to our scripture this morning. And as you're finding 2 Timothy chapter 1, I want to share this idea with you. Famous last words. Famous last words, expressed in the form of an epitaph, a letter, or sometimes just spoken with one's final breath. The dying words of a person are a special form of quotation. I mean, confronted by the inevitability of death can lead a person to mutter some pretty profound stuff. Views on life, mortality, and the hereafter that can inspire and sometimes even surprise us. The final reflections of a person as they face death have always held some fascination for us in human society. In fact, in the last couple of years in particular, we've witnessed a renewed interest in gaining wisdom and perspective from those preparing to die through bestsellers like Tuesdays with Maury or The Last Lecture. But long before those works were written, one of the most influential figures in history put pen to paper and shared his famous last words. And the person I'm referring to this morning is none other than the Apostle Paul. Paul, initially a skeptic and a persecutor of those who followed Jesus, Paul's entire world was turned upside down when he experienced the risen Lord on a dusty road going to Damascus. From that moment on, Paul became inarguably the greatest missionary, evangelist, church planter, and theologian for Christ. And if you haven't been with us, we've been spending the year going through the whole Bible through this book, The Story, which is just a 31-chapter narrative of the Scriptures. And as we're nearing the end of this year-long journey in the Bible, I don't know if you've caught it, in the fall we started what's called Act 2, or what we refer to as the New Testament. But as we started Act 2, specifically in these last couple of weeks as we've been in the narrative of the book of Acts, That book starts initially detailing what happened to the original disciples after Jesus' ascent into heaven. But I don't know if you've caught it, if you've been reading along or if you're familiar, but all of a sudden in the book of Acts, the story shifts gradually and singularly to one man, to Paul. It all becomes about the life of Paul, his tireless effort to proclaim the good news that he himself recently discovered. All about Paul's effort to bring new converts to Christ in the areas around the Mediterranean Sea. And in fact, it's Paul who establishes the first Christian churches in those areas. It's Paul's letters written to encourage and instruct those churches that he established that predominate the writings that make up Act 2, the New Testament. 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by Paul. Paul's prominence in the story, his journeys, his reflections, his insights are so sweeping that we can say it is Paul next to Jesus Christ who has shaped the understanding and influence of Christianity in the world for the last 2,000 years. 
And if you know anything about his story, if you've been reading along, from the moment that, that conversion experience happened on the road to Damascus, Paul's life didn't just get turned upside down. Paul's life was subject to incredible opposition. This is a guy who along the way in his journey following Jesus was shipwrecked, he was flogged, he was stoned and left for dead, he was put in prison, put under house arrest, and as we come to 2 Timothy, Paul is now at a place where he's ultimately facing a death sentence. He's imprisoned again and, in, and awaiting his execution in Rome. And so Paul writes his final words to a friend, to a protege named Timothy. And today we're going to read part of those famous last words so that we, like Timothy, might be encouraged and refocused in our understanding of how to live for Christ. We're going to go right out of the first chapter, right at verse 1. If you've got it open, follow along with me or just listen. Here it is. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For the spirit God, the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But now it has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That's why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've been reading the story, as I said, all this year. And we've been understanding sort of the biblical timeline, how everything fits together. But as we're drawing near the end of our time in the story, it's more than appropriate that we should start talking about not just what the story is, but how to actually live the story. What does it look like to live the story? What does it look like to live, breathe, and act upon the gospel of Jesus Christ? We've spent so many weeks, the last couple of weeks, just talking about what the gospel is, what Jesus did, why it matters, what happened when the Spirit came upon people. But we have not really dived into what does it look like to live the story. But we have this incredible opportunity 
And I think it's intentional. I think it's why the story shifts. This tremendous example to glean through one man's life, Paul's life, what it looks like to live the gospel. And today, we have not just the story of his life, but we have by his own hand, his own famous last words, as he writes to Timothy in a very deeply personal way, what he perceives as the key ingredients to living the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And there are three things that I want us to hold on to from what Paul writes here. First, living the gospel is exercising the gift of God. Second, living the gospel is sharing the gift of God. And third, living the gospel means trusting the giver. These are the things that I hear Paul saying as he writes to Timothy. Let's start with living the gospel is exercising the gift of God. Paul talks a lot in this letter about this gift of God that he says Timothy has been given. We all have been given. And what is this gift? Very broadly, this gift is a relationship. It's a relationship with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ, and with the Holy Spirit. But Paul, in writing here, gets more specific about what this gift is about. And he writes, this gift is about three things. This gift of God in Jesus Christ is about faith, it's about grace, and it's about eternal life. We have to exercise this gift that is about faith, that is about grace and eternal life. Paul writes and, and encourages Timothy. He says, I, I, you have a sincere and honest faith. The very first dimension of this gift of God is faith. And the key thing to hold on to as we talk about this is all of these are gifts. Faith is a gift to us. Paul writes, you have been given faith, Timothy, through the laying on of my hands. And what I'm getting at here is for Paul, it's about the faith of Christ rather than our faith in Christ. And what I'm saying is the faith of Christ is not first about what you believe, but this gift of faith is more about the God who believes in you. Christ who comes to us. Christ who comes for us. And this is important because oftentimes in the community of faith, when we talk about faith, people get very, very fixated on, do I believe enough? Do I believe the right things? Do I have enough faith? I'm struggling with my faith. Does that mean my relationship with Christ is in jeopardy? And what Paul is saying is faith, first and foremost, is a gift. It's the gift of God. It's not primarily about what you believe about Jesus Christ. That's important. But primarily, it's about Christ who believes in you. The God who believes in you. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but forgiveness is the first deposit of faith. Paul references this gift as being like a deposit. Forgiveness is the first deposit of faith. Because what do the scriptures tell us? While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't forgive us because we had earned it. Christ didn't forgive us because we said we were sorry, because we were looking for it. Christ didn't forgive us because we cleaned ourselves up. While we were yet still sinners, Christ forgave us, died for us. The first deposit of faith that God puts in our lives is forgiving us. Christ has faith in us because he acts as if we are worth forgiving. We are worth dying for. This may be like radical for some of you because again, many of us get very caught up in our, in our faith. But maybe if we switched it and the starting point is not about what you believe, but the starting point is about the God who believes in you. Jesus who says, I believe in you. You were worth dying for. 
you were worth coming for. And a great, what it comes to mind when I think about this kind of this shift that I hear Paul talking about is that really um, powerful story in the Gospels. Do you remember it with the epileptic father who has a child who's suffering terribly and he just wants his child to be made well? And Jesus comes upon this scene and the disciples haven't been able to do anything about it. And Jesus turns to this father whose s- child is suffering and says, do you believe? And you remember, it's profound what the Father says. It's probably the most honest statement in, in, the, in the Gospels. The Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. And it seems like a contradictory phrase, right? It seems like, what? okay, this guy's confused. But it's the most sincere, honest expression of what faith is from our perspective. Our faith is never perfect, right? We are always partly unbelievers, And so it cannot first and foremost be about our faith in God. It is first and foremost about God's faith in us. We need Christ to give us faith. That's what that man confesses. That's what's so beautiful. I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to believe. I need you to give me faith. And so you in your life, if you're struggling and you're going, you know, I don't know if I believe. Or you know, if I don't know if I believe enough. This is why, counter to sometimes how it's taught in the church, I have told you, doubts are okay with God. It's okay to doubt God. There's nothing wrong with doubting God because the thing is, we doubt God. We are all partly unbelievers. Our faith is not perfect. The key is not to hide those doubts, but to bring those doubts, to confess those doubts, to give our doubts to God because when we do, as we lay before our doubts, Christ will give us faith. Christ will help our unbelief. What a powerful thing maybe for some of you here today because you've been sitting on the side of going, you know, I just don't know if I got it. I just don't know if I get it. I just don't know if I believe everything enough or what I used to believe. And sitting in that that awkward dark space and wondering if somehow that means you're on the outside looking in, wondering if somehow you're estranged from God for you to hear today in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of your lack of faith, Jesus saying resoundingly, unequivocally, I believe in you. I have faith in you. Paul unpacks even more this this first dimension of this gift of God, of faith, when he says that this faith is given to us, but it's also handed down to us. I love how he invokes this for Timothy. He says, this faith that I assure you is in you, Timothy, was first in your grandmother, Lois, then it was in your mom, Eunice, and it is now, I, I, I declare, it is in you. This faith, again, is a gift. It's inherited. It's passed down from one person to another. But when I say that it's passed down from one person to another, it's again, just to continue with this shift, it's not again as much about what Lois or Eunice believed as much as it's about the God who believed in them. And this is where we give testimony of God's faithfulness. When we pass on this faith that we have been given, it's not about trying to get our children or our grandchildren or our friends to believe like we believe, but instead to simply lift up to them the stories, the examples in their lives where we have seen God's faith in us, where God has been faithful. That's what it means to lean on the faith of another person. I can't see it. I don't believe it. Well, look and let me tell you how God is revealing it in my life, how God is demonstrating that faith in my life because what's happening in my life, God is looking to do in your life, is, do, is bringing it into your life. This is what it means to give faith to others. We testify to what we've seen. We give witness to the Jesus we know. And again, back to this paradigm shift, and I'm talking primarily to parents right now, young or old. We, we think that passing on the faith is about giving our kids the ritual. 
We think that we pass on our faith if we bring our kids to church every Sunday, if we help them memorize scripture, if we teach them prayers that are, that are there, we give them all of the, um, we give them a Bible in their hands. And I don't want you to misunderstand that these are practices that are important, but if you simply think that passing on your faith is taking your kids through the ritual, then your kids are not gonna receive the faith that Christ has in them. Because all they're gonna learn is about how to go through the motions. They're not gonna learn about the relationship. If you bring your kids to church, if you put a Bible in their hands and you teach them how to pray, but you don't share with them your experience of the person of Jesus Christ in your life, then that's not faith you're passing on to them. That's religion. And there's a huge difference. This gift that Paul talks about that we have to exercise is about faith, but he also says it's about grace. Paul says this grace has been given to us in Jesus Christ before the beginning of time. In verse nine, I love that. Before the beginning of time, grace is a gift. And Paul defines this, this gift of grace and he gives the contours of the gift by saying it's about power, it's about boldness, it's about love, and it's about discipline. This grace gives us power, boldness, it gives us love, and it gives us discipline, self-discipline. And again, Paul underscores, just like with faith, this is all, these are all gifts. It's not something we've earned. It's not something we've deserved. It's not about what we've done, Paul writes to Timothy. These gifts, this gift of grace is about what Jesus Christ has done. It's about the presence of the Holy Spirit, what the Spirit continues to do in our lives. So when we talk about the power of grace, when we talk about the, the, the love that is about grace, when we talk about discipline that comes from grace, here's the radical shift for many of us, what Paul is teasing out is just the all-encompassing nature of this gift of grace in our lives. Yet for many of us, we tend to think of grace as being just what saves us. Our understanding of grace is grace is what saves us, as if grace is somehow God's all, all, spiritual infusion of what we need in our lives. Think about the acronym we use. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. We talk about grace as if it only existed when Jesus came. But the revelation of the cross, the revelation of the resurrection, is not that grace is some new idea that God has, not some spiritual infusion that God gives us in the, in the last moment. The great revelation of the cross and the resurrection is not that grace saves us, but that grace sustains us. It's all about grace. It's all grace. It's not just grace on the cross. It's not just grace at the resurrection. It's all been grace. That's the paradigm shift. And so Paul is saying, you've got to exercise this gift of grace. And this gift of grace is not just something that goes, oh, good, good, I'm saved. It's this gift that gives you boldness, power. This grace that God gives you enables you to love in a way that you, you can't love apart from God. It's this perfect, sacrificial, unconquerable love that God offers you. And it gives you, this grace gives you self-discipline, not self-discipline that you suddenly have to improve yourself. This grace comes into your life that enables you, that empowers you, that teaches you how to be changed. It's not about you changing yourself. This grace that God brings is about God giving you the means to be changed, to be transformed. Paul says, you have to exercise this gift of God that is faith, that is grace. But the third dimension of this gift of God beyond faith and grace is life. Life immortal, Paul writes. Life is a gift, Paul writes. Life as we know it, but also life as it will be. As Paul articulates it, this gift of God that is life is not just any life, it's life everlasting. It's the life where death has been defeated. It's the life where, where life has been vindicated, where we endure forever. This gift that we are to exercise of life is to recognize that we have been given the gift of freedom, that we have been given the gift of eternal possibility in Christ. 
What Paul is teasing out for Timothy and what we need to hear is when we talk about exercising the gift of life, it's not just saying, oh, I've got, I'm alive. It's recognizing that if you have been, if, you, if you, your life is hidden in Christ, as Paul writes, if your life is now resurrected life in Christ, that means that you can live your life differently. That means when you embrace the gift of eternal life in Christ, that failure is never final. Do you understand that? When you don't know Jesus, failure in your life means that's it, game over. But when you live the resurrected life of Christ, there is no such thing as failure. Because even when you hit the wall, even when you get knocked out, you're always going to get back up. You're always going to get resurrected. God has this incredible habit of bringing back the dead. And that means you can live your life differently. How would you live your life differently if failure was not an option? How would you live your life differently if failure was not a possibility? But instead, every risk you took, everything you did for Christ in following Jesus, you knew you could not fail. You could only just grow stronger. Because maybe, I know that I'm, I'm talking about heady things here. The way we see life apart from Jesus, we see life in a line, don't we? We see life in a line. The day you're born, you go along that line, middle age comes, it's kind of a big valley, right? And then at some point, the line's gonna end, right? At some point. And when that line ends, right? No more of this. That's life apart from Christ, it's a line. And the older we get, the more we're like, I don't know, man, I don't know how much longer the line's gonna go. I don't know. But life in Christ is not a line. Resurrected eternal life in Christ is a circle. It's not a line. The line becomes a circle where every time we hit a wall, every time we fail, every time we get knocked down, every time something, we take a hard right, it's not falling off, but it's circling back. Life, eternal resurrected life in Christ is a circle because every time something happens, it's a reorientation, it's a reset. And it, what happens is we get into this deeper groove, this deeper understanding. It just keeps going. A deeper awareness of ourselves, a deeper understanding of each other, a deeper and more profound awareness of this God who is in relationship with us. And that's a, that circle is eternity. You know, people talk about heaven and eternal life and they're like, man, I hope we're not just sitting on clouds. That's gonna be so boring. But what if eternity is something that we're experiencing now in Christ that's just gonna continue, that we're gonna continue in our relationship with ourselves, in our relationship with each other, in our relationship with God to continue to deepen and widen the breadth and width of our understanding, of our feeling, of our comprehension, of our joy, our peace, our love. That's what Paul is talking about. That's why Paul can say when he talks about exercising this gift of eternal life that he has no shame you look at Paul's life and he says, if you look at my life in terms of a line, it's a train wreck, right? Ever since that Damascus road, I've been, had shipwrecks, I've been flogged, I've been <laughs> stoned and imprisoned, and now I'm waiting for a death sentence. Based upon the line, my life looks like a train wreck. But Paul says, I have no shame. I have no regrets because my life in Christ is not a line, it's a circle. I have confidence, Paul writes, I have peace because even though I'm in prison, even though I'm gonna die, there's not shame, there's not an end, only victory. It's not an ending, it's a beginning. It's the best is yet to come. How many of you live with that mentality? How many of you live with the best is yet to come? I look around, some of you, some of you are pretty young and you're like, heck yeah, best is yet to come, that's right. <laughs> yeah! And then I look around, some of you are getting a little on in years, like me. 
Maybe a little older and you're like, oh, I don't know, man, the best ain't yet to come. It seems like it's getting worse every day. <laughs> I'm not looking, I don't know, I don't know, I, I, you know, it doesn't look good to me. Paul says, oh, it's not the end. This, is, this isn't the end, this is only getting, it's only gonna get better. How would your life change if you looked at it from the perspective of eternity? How would your life change if instead of looking at, man, that was a good day, I hope tomorrow's as good as this one, you said, you know, that was good, but tomorrow's gonna be better. And then it's gonna be better. And some of you I'm looking at right now and you're like, got that, that sarcastic, cynical look like, yeah, man, no. Talk to Paul. Beaten, stoned, flogged, left for dead, imprisoned, and the guy is like, oh no, man, it's all victory. The guy's singing, we are the champions by Queen in prison right now, okay? <laughs> because he knows, he sees his life through the eternal perspective of the resurrection life we have in Christ. This shift can happen for you. When we live out of our eternal life, our resurrected life, we're not focused on what the world values. When we stop looking at the line, when we stop trying to hold on and are fixated on what's temporary or fleeting, you know what happens? You get freedom because you've got nothing to lose but everything to gain. We all know it. We've talked about it. We talk about it all the time. There comes this point when you realize all that material wealth you're worried about, whether it's your money, your property, your stuff, it doesn't last. And the more that you hold on to that, the more you're just waiting to lose it. The more you're freaking out about when's it going to go, how much are you losing. But the minute that you realize that's not the real wealth of this life, the minute that you realize the wealth of divine love that you experience, the wealth of divine love that you express endures forever, your life is changed. You can sit all your life and pursue titles and degrees and you can be well worried about your reputation but at some point, you're going to realize, no matter what your title is, no matter how many degrees you have, no matter what your reputation is, it's only going to take you so far. At some point, it's not going to matter. But your integrity, the influence of mercy and forgiveness and compassion in your life is everlasting. Forgiveness, compassion, and mercy in your life, expressed through your life, are everlasting. You can try in your life to make peace on your own terms. You can try to make peace with yourself. You can try to make peace with your within your family, your community. We can try to make peace in this world. But that peace we try to make on our own in whatever dynamic is always fragile, isn't it? It's always tenuous. It's always short-lived. And so we end up being frustrated and that's where that cynical, sarcastic look comes in your eye because you've tried to make it work and you can't and you won't. But if you embrace this resurrected life that is yours in Christ, instead of trying to make peace, instead if you lived, if you received and lived out of the peace that Christ gives you, this peace that comes out of this place, this acknowledgement that we're all broken, we live in this world and we try to make peace by blaming somebody else, but the peace that Christ gives comes from acknowledging, confessing, we're all broken. It doesn't matter who you want to blame. We're all broken, but the peace of Christ comes in not just acknowledging we're all broken, but at the same time again acknowledging we're all broken, being able to recognize we're also all blessed. You could spend all your life coming up with excuses you know, for re justifying the mess that this world is in, the brokenness of this world. But the peace that Christ gives is about the freedom of acknowledging we're all responsible for the mess. We're all responsible. You could try to pile on and say someone's more responsible than you. Where's that going to get you? 
The peace that Christ gives is confessing that we're all responsible for the mess, but the peace of Christ comes in not just confessing we're all responsible, but that we're also all redeemed by the cross of Christ. Divine love, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, peace. This is our eternal inheritance. These are our treasures in heaven. Remember when Jesus talks about your treasure in heaven? These are our treasures in heaven that are ours now, that we can be using, investing, celebrating now. These are our treasures in heaven that no matter what happens, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what will happen to you, That divine love, that mercy, that compassion, that forgiveness, that peace that we've been talking about, it cannot be taken away from you. It will not fade. It will not rust or spoil. Living the gospel, Paul writes to Timothy, is about exercising the gift of Christ. And that means we exercise the gift of faith, the God who believes in us before we believe in him, exercising the gift of grace, grace that doesn't just save us, but sustains us, that's everything, and eternal resurrection life, life that isn't a line but a circle that just gets deeper and wider in its breath and its understanding and exposure to us. Paul has this great image to kind of of put it together for Timothy. He likens this gift of Christ through the Holy Spirit to a fire. Notice how he says, fan the flame, Paul wants us to understand this is not a static gift. This is a spark we don't start ourselves, but it's a flame we keep ablaze. And that's why the second point here is living the Christian life, living the gospel, doesn't stop with exercising the gift of Christ. It means we also share, we extend the gift of Christ to others. We share faith, grace, and resurrection life with each other. Living the gospel is sharing the gift of God. Paul is quite clear in verse 9. I don't know if you caught it. He writes to Timothy, we have been saved and we have been called to a holy life. What I'm keying in on is we have been called. Paul says we have been saved and we have been called. In other words, this gift that we've been talking about of Christ is not something static that we just put away. Imagine imagine if things had gone differently for Paul after the Damascus Road. Paul had lived his entire life sincerely but sincerely wrong. And he gets knocked on his butt from from his horse in Damascus and encounters the living Christ. And imagine if Paul, after that moment in Damascus, goes, woohoo, I'm saved. Yes, awesome. Awesome, great. Okay, I got my sight back. You know what, I'm gonna go kick back and just live the rest of my life. You know, I'm just gonna kind of wait because I'm all good now. Man, I was going in the wrong direction, but Jesus saved me. Woo, covered, good. End of the story, right, until Paul dies. But that's not what happens. Paul, when he's saved, recognizes that as he's saved, he's called, as he writes to Timothy. What am I getting at? What I'm getting at is too many of us, church, stop at being saved. Whether you were raised in a Christian home, you were born into this thing. You were born into these gifts. They were passed on to you like Lois and Eunice. Or whether you, like Paul, were going the wrong way and God got your attention and got you on the right path, too many of us stop at being saved. What do I mean by that? We go, all right. God has saved me. I made the list. I'm on the list. Yes. I'm in the book of life. I got my divine reservation. Our status has changed, right? Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. He no longer sees my sins. He sees Jesus. God sees Jesus. Our status has changed, but our life no longer has been changed. Our life isn't changed. Oh, if we've just been saved and we're not sharing the gift, if we, if, if we just stop at being saved, we know how to remain affiliated, right? Okay, I'm on the list, I've got my reservation, so I'm gonna join a church, 
I'm going to go to church every week. I know all the hand motions, you know. I know, right? I know the hand motions. I, I, I know the, I, I'm going to identify with the right team. Yeah, go team Christian. Yes. Woo, we're in, baby. Yeah, all right. I know the right tools and the right rituals. I know the buzzwords, grace alone, faith alone. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, peace be with you and also with you. Yeah, I know all those words. But the problem is, this gift that we have isn't just about stopping at being saved. It's about living the gospel. In other words, these gifts that we are given in Christ don't just give us a hall pass from hell into heaven. You hear me, church? This, this whole thing we're doing is not just about getting a hall pass from hell into heaven. This gift we have been given in Christ is about giving us a passport to engage and encounter that world, this world for Jesus. We have been called, Paul writes. We have not just been saved, we have been called. And what have we been called to, Paul writes? We have been called to a holy life. What's a holy life? It's this simple. The holy life we have been called to is the life of Christ. We have been called to the life of Christ. Being called means following Jesus, his lead, his leading. We have been saved by Jesus in order to follow Jesus, to learn to live and experience his life our life in him, his life given for others. To break this down, in other words, we have been saved to serve. We live this holy life by sharing the gift of Christ, by following Jesus, and by serving like Jesus. Paul reflects this, what sharing the gift looks like in his own life when he says, I have been a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. We are heralds, we are apostles, and we are teachers to share the gift of Christ. To not stop with being saved, but to live this gospel life means we are heralds. We announce and we, we, we follow and we point to Christ. So people all the time, when they ask, why are you making the decisions you're making? Why are you going where you're going? Why are you saying the things you're saying? You're constantly pointing and saying, because he's going before me, because I'm following him, because I'm with him. Jesus, he's the one. He directs my steps. He's the one who tells me how I should speak in the situation. I just keep my eyes on him. We're constantly being a herald pointing to it's all about Christ. Christ directs my steps. Christ directs my words, my thoughts, my heart. Paul says we are heralds. Paul says we are apostles. But as we're focused on Christ and following him, pointing to him, we are going forward and we're not just fixated on being Jesus. To be an apostle means we are reaching out and sharing Jesus with others. As Jesus is leading us forward, we have the expectation that Christ is going to bring people for us to encounter along the way. And we're going to be apostles. We're going to say, hey, come with me. Come and see. you got to know this Jesus that I'm following. Why, when people are asking you, why do you live the way you do? Why do you talk the way you do? Why do you think the way you do? We're pointing to Jesus, but we're also inviting. Come along. Come with me. Join me. Come into my life. Come and meet this person who's at the center of my life. We are heralds, we are apostles, and Paul says we are teachers. We follow Jesus, and we invite others, but we teach them as we invite them about Jesus Christ. We introduce them. We share with them who Jesus is in our lives. Paul, in this letter, often talks about this gift that we share, this gift of Christ, as a deposit. And it makes me think about the parable that Jesus taught, the parable of the talents. Do you remember that parable? Where Jesus talks about the master who gives people talents and then goes away. This is, this is how I want you to hear this parable now. Many of us want to stop with being saved. We want to go, okay, I'm on the list. I got my reservation. I got my get out of jail free card. Woo, I'm good. 
That's the guy in the parable who gets the talents from Jesus and then says, well, I'm good. I'll bury this in the ground. And I'll just bring it back when Jesus comes back. And that's what all of us are doing who are only living with being saved, right? We're waiting for Jesus to come back or when we meet Jesus and then all of a sudden we're going to pull out and go, hey, remember me? I got my card. I'm on the list. Check it, right? And remember what Jesus does in that parable, what he says, right? Is Jesus going to go, Jesus is going to go, I gave you the gift of faith. I gave you the gift of grace. I gave you the gift of resurrected life. What did you do with it? What, what did you do with it? Oh, I thought it was just about being saved, man. I just thought it was about being on the list. I don't want to mess anything up. So I just took all that faith, that grace, that resurrection life you gave me, and I just kind of, you know, put it under my pillow. You th- you do, anybody here actually think that's, going to go, that's how it's going to go down? Jesus is going to go, man, you got it all right. Awesome. Way to go. Paul is specific in saying to Timothy, we have been given these gifts that we have to exercise and we have to share them. The righteousness of Christ has been credited to us in order for us to extend credit to others, to extend forgiveness, to bring healing, to break down barriers and offer hope. If you've been saved and all you're concerned about is you know you're good, you got it all wrong. The whole reason why you've been given the, the ability to have freedom, the ability to know it's that Christ believes in you, that grace is in your life, and that grace is everything is grace. It's given to you. It's not something you earn, that you have this resurrection life, that failure is not final. It's not so you can sit on your duff and go, whew, man, all right, great. It's so out of that freedom, out of that faith that God has in you, out of that grace that God has given you, you can share it with others. You can extend that, that faith to other people. You can give that grace to other people. You can help people to no longer live on the line but live as part of the circle. Sharing the gift of Christ means sharing the sound teaching of Jesus, Paul writes. And that doesn't mean sharing easy answers, quick fixes, or cheap grace. The world is filled with easy answers, quick fixes, and cheap grace. We are called... We have been saved and called to share the truth that the world needs to hear. The truth that it's not about what we believe. It's about the God who believes in us. The truth that it's not about what we earn or amass. It's about, it's all grace. It's what God gives us. The truth that our lives are not meant to be temporal, but they're meant to be eternal. We're supposed to live where we don't have to worry about failure. We don't have to worry about death. We are called to give truth, this truth, gospel truth that the world needs to hear. But here's the thing. Paul writes it to Timothy. That truth the world needs to hear has to be inseparably mixed with love that the world needs to see. Many of us are good at telling the world the truth, but not many of us can at the same time show the world the love that the world needs to see. God doesn't call us to judge anybody. The world doesn't need our judgment. God doesn't call us to condemn anybody. God doesn't looking for us to tell anybody they're going to hell. And God isn't looking for us to be vindictive on anybody, to take revenge. God is ta- calling us, sharing these gifts of faith, grace, and resurrection life is about extending compassion, mercy, and understanding. Understanding even when the person you're understanding doesn't agree with you or you don't agree with them. Exercising the gift, sharing the gift, but both those two things are contingent upon what Paul finishes with, which is trusting 
the giver. Living the gospel means trusting the giver. I love this part in the letter where Paul gets personal and in talking about his own life, he says, I know whom I have believed. I have no shame, I see victory because I know whom I have believed. Notice Paul doesn't say, I know what I have believed. Because for Paul, his trust is not in a what, but in a who. Paul's trust is not in a religion, it's in a relationship. What I'm about to say may shock some of you, maybe it won't, but let me, t- let me put this into words for you, what it means to trust the giver. My friends, I don't believe in Christianity. I don't believe in Christianity. I believe in the risen and living Jesus Christ. I don't trust the church. That's right, I'm the pastor of this place and I said it. I don't trust the church but I put my trust in the body of Christ of whom Jesus is the head. I don't stress about every jot and tittle of this book. You wanna argue about what this word means or what's said here or how this doesn't line up with this, go ahead, have fun, but keep me out of it. Because I don't stress about every jot and tittle of this book. I stress, I place the weight of my life on the one to whom this book points to the one to whom this book reveals the word made flesh. You wanna talk about the word made flesh, let's go. I don't limit my ability to worship, to perceive and receive God's promise and glory in Christ based on creature comforts. Whether they serve coffee before church or whether they're the particular style of worship, whether they play modern songs or old hymns or they got drums or an electric guitar or whether they got candles or whatever, I don't. I don't limit my ability to worship based upon specific traditions either. If the word and spirit are present, if the person of Christ is front and center and lifted high, I can worship, I will praise, I can encounter, I will experience the love, grace, and truth of my Father in heaven in any language, in any tradition, and in any culture. Because I trust the giver. Paul writes, I know whom I have believed, not what I have believed. Amen to that. And Paul goes on, I am convinced he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. What is Christ guarding for us? What do we entrust to him? Is he guarding our salvation, our heavenly reservation, our place on the guest list, our divine destination ticket? No, what Paul is getting at, which is huge, is he trusts, he's convinced that God is able to guard what he has entrusted to him and what we trust to Jesus, what we rely upon the spirit of Christ to trust is the promise and fulfillment of my life. Paul puts his life on the line. Paul says, I trust the giver with my very life. And if you know anything about your history, Paul isn't the only one to put his life on the line in trusting the giver. The very early believers, the very first believers in Jesus Christ were willing to trust the giver with their lives. They're called the martyrs of the church. And what's interesting is it's the death of these early believers, the way they seem to embrace death without fear, that they trusted Jesus with their lives, without hesitation, without anxiety, that in fact led more and more people, not less, to embrace the gift of Christ in their own lives. Some people will tell you that when Christianity got legitimate, when Christianity grew, is when Constantine converted to Christ and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. And I'm here to tell you that's bunk. The church was established. The church took root, and there was no going back the minute that people saw followers of Jesus who said, I trust the giver with my life. I go to death and I am not afraid. I am not concerned. Much like Paul, bring it. 
And if you doubt me on this, go back in your history because by the second century, one of the early church fathers, that's the generation after the original disciples, Tertullian was his name, wrote it this way. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The world recognizes and embraces the gifts of Christ when it sees us trusting the giver. In the 21st century, we talk about martyrs, and that's easy for us to go at different time, different place. That's not us. That's somebody else. And we forget that there are other people in our own day, martyrs, brothers and sisters who live in other countries right now without the freedoms and securities we take for granted, who truly suffer for following Jesus, who are engaging and sharing the gift of Christ by trusting their very lives in the hands of the Father. Do we share that kind of trust in the giver? Are you willing to put your life on the line for what we gather here today? Are you willing to be a martyr? Because the thing is, we're all called to be martyrs for Christ. Before you freak out about that, martyr in its original meaning was not about somebody who dies. Martyr simply meant a witness. The word martyr was, was basically expressing someone who not, just, not necessarily through their physical death, but through the whole of their lives demonstrated that they were in, with, through, and for Jesus Christ. So when I say we're all called to be martyrs, that doesn't mean you all have to die physically. What I'm invoking, what Paul's invoking for Timothy is the kind of trust that Jesus himself calls us to when he declares, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. Trusting the giver means being a martyr, a witness through words and lives that loudly proclaim that Jesus is the Savior and Lord of our lives. And that trust is revealed when we not necessarily physically die, though it may come to that, but at the very least we die to ourselves. When we demonstrate in our lives that we're not living by our own will, but we're living by his. When we demonstrate in our own lives that we're not serving our own agendas, but we're being his mouth and hands to the world, revealing and sharing his love, mercy, and forgiveness that Christ offers to all. <laughs> Paul's final letter to Timothy, like all famous last words, is Paul's attempt to leave behind what we would call a legacy for Timothy. But the thing is that I don't know if you notice is that this is a legacy that Paul's already been living long before death came calling for him. It's not a legacy that Paul built for himself or by himself. It's a legacy that's been handed down and given to him by Christ. And it's our legacy too. Beloved, are you living this legacy? Or are you trying to build your own legacy? Because if you're trying to build a legacy of your own, you're not going to have enough room in your life for sharing and exercising the gift of Christ you've been given. You're not going to have any room in your life because you're going to be too busy trying to accumulate more. When you're trying to build your own legacy, the mindset and orientation of our heart is never, I have more than enough. When we try to build our own legacy, it's always, I need more. I don't have enough yet. When you're trying to build a legacy of your own, you've got nothing to give until you're gone, right? You just keep accumulating all this stuff and you have stuff to give once you're dead. When you're trying to build your own legacy, you don't trust the giver until death forces you to, right? When you're trying to build your own legacy, you don't trust the giver until death all of a sudden smacks you in the face and you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. And my friends, deathbed confessions are great. They work, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because we have been given the legacy, the gift of Christ. We have been given faith. We have been given grace and eternal life that we can exercise and we can share with others today. 
And when we live out of this legacy that is ours in Christ, we can give everything away. We can live without fear because everything we need is already ours thanks to Jesus. Nothing more can be added. Nothing can be taken away. Even when we face loss, even when we confront failure, even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy will follow us. The cup of redemption, reconciliation, and resurrection will overflow from this life into the next, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so you see, through the witness of Paul, we realize something powerful. Through the reorientation and transformation of one life, other lives are saved, resurrected, and reconciled. That's why I think the whole story shifts just to Paul, because what we see is that the world has changed, the kingdom is revealed and expanded one person at a time. And none of this is because of a legacy Paul built or worked for, for himself. All of this came because Paul lived out of the legacy that was his, that is ours in Christ. How do you want to be remembered? What will you be remembered for? Every human life is a story. It has a beginning and an end. Even we who follow Jesus, there's an ending and the, there's a turning of a page, but it's still the conclusion of a chapter we all who are in Christ have a story to tell and it's the story of our meeting Jesus. It's the story of his faithfulness in the midst of the particular twists and turns of the pilgrimage of our lives and the last words we have to give to this world. The first, the last words we have to give are what we've learned, the defeats and triumphs we've faced thanks to Jesus. And they may be different in their specifics but they're all the same in that they reflect this. The larger story, the grander narrative of the salvation of the world, thanks to Jesus Christ. This is our legacy in Christ. And my friends, it's a legacy we live into long before we pass it on to others. Amen.